Hello and welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. My name's Darren and I'm here with Faith. Hi. Pastor Faith. And we will get to the sermon in just a little bit, but we wanted to make some time and space to talk about something special that we've been having on Sundays. And it's a new song that Pastor Faith, you and your husband, Josh, wrote, and we've shared it with our community. Tell us a little bit about it. What's the name of it? Yeah. And where did it come from? Yeah, so it's called We Need You. Um, and I, I'm going to root this in 1 Corinthians 2 when Paul says, My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Um, the, the first thing that was written for this song was the beginning of that bridge section that says, We don't need better plans. We don't need clever thoughts. We need your Spirit, O oh God. We don't want the wisdom of man. We want we want a display of God's power, which is really what the world needs. They don't need to see a show, or even in the area of worship, they don't need to hear good music. We need to see a display of the power of God. So it came from that heart cry. And then the beginning of the song kind of sets up this space where we invite Holy Spirit, we open our hearts, we clear out all the distractions, the things that get in the way and then just simply cry out for more of Him. And it's this this longing to be a, a space where the Spirit would rest mm-hmm. as a community. Yeah, I love that. That's such a the heart and core value of Garden Church. Exactly. Knowing that the Spirit is present, like He's welcome to the party and we get to celebrate. And I so appreciate the beauty and creativity that you've been cultivating, not only with worship, but just something that we can invite the rest of our community into. And, and it's so cool when, when uh, in the recording of this song, it's the first time that we shared it. And it's like people have been singing it for weeks. <laughs> and it was just such a cool thing to experience. And so we're so happy for those of you that have experienced that with us on a Sunday morning. And we want to see just more original songs being birthed from this place um, that you're talking about, just being saturated in the Holy Spirit. So we are welcoming you to stick around after the sermon where you can hear a live recording of the song, We Need You, and I hope it blesses your heart. Church Podcast. The following message was previously recorded at the Garden Church in downtown Long Beach, California. I'm the kind of guy that loves a new year. Anybody like New Year's out there? I'm just a new start, new chapter, blank slate kind of guy. I need a lot of those, and this sort of naturally happens this time of year where we're having the faith to kind of dream differently. And um, today, as I was given a blank slate as far as what I get to teach on or preach out of, um, I almost always gravitate towards the Psalms. I love the Psalms. Part of it is I'm, um, as we were led so well in worship today by this team, I came up in the ranks as a worship guy. And so I love worshiping. I love leading people in worship. And some of you, not all of you know that the Psalms are in ways all about worship. It's kind of the worship set list of God's people, generation after generation. But also, I love the Psalms because they're really honest. They just deal with the stuff of real life. Um, And there's times of elation and times of devastation and times of huge questions and times of clarity. And particularly the Psalms written by a guy named David. And if you grew up in the church, you'll recognize David of, you know, slingshot, slingshot fame with Goliath and then he becomes the king, but he has a roller coaster of a life that he lives. And the Psalms often capture these moments 
of David's life. And we're gonna open up to Psalm 27 today and see what was really a through line of David's life and leadership reflected in this Psalm, Psalm 27. And I'm hoping that it, it really points us towards a new way to approach a new year, a new way to approach a new year. And this Psalm is gonna be on the screen. I'll read it for us, but um, you can read in your Bible. This is out of the NIV. But we'll read right now, Psalm 27 says, the Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life, of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked advance against me to devour me, it is my enemies and my foes who will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. The war break out against me, even then I will be confident. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and seek him in his temple. For in the day of trouble, he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his sacred tent and set me high upon a rock. Then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me. At his sacred tent, I will sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. Hear my voice when I call, Lord. Be merciful to me and answer me. My heart says of you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. And today we wanna talk practically about what it means to seek God in this new year. But right off the bat in this Psalm, we hit up against something and it's fear. You know, David's opening question is, whom shall I fear? Whom shall I fear? And fear is something that none of us are strangers to. I, I think we would all agree that fear is something that we are confronted with, whether personally or uh, relationally or nationally on a daily basis. I, I'm in my late 40s, and I have never lived in a time when fear has been more ever-present in my life. I'm like almost five decades into life. And today, literally today, I opened my USA Today app. I usually kind of pop that open every day to see what's going on. Every day, there's some crisis, some tragedy. I don't know if you saw it already today in Israel, Jerusalem. There was a, you know, another senseless act of violence and killed four people, injured many more. But the sad thing is, I think we're all getting numb to it now. We're just so conditioned to living in this anxiety, living in terror, living in often what is a crippling fear. And there are some fears that make a lot of sense. Some don't. You know, some of us have just irrational fears. Do you guys have any irrational fears? Like, for instance, I'll give you an example. Um, we have a family of six. So my wife, Lisa, and I, we have four kids. One of our family members, I won't say who it is, has an irrational fear of sharks. Now, sharks are something worthy of being fearful about in the ocean. But this person, who may just be in the room today, this person... <laughs> Looks for sharks in lakes, in rivers, <laughs> swimming pools, bathtubs sometimes. So, so this person has just had this irrational fear. This started when she saw Jaws as a little girl, and it's just hung over for life. Uh, I have another person in our family who has an irrational fear of clowns' feet. Not just clowns, <laughs> which are certainly scary on their own right. Clowns' feet. One of our kids saw an episode on TV years ago. Like, uh, I don't know what show it was. What show was that? 
Oh, Full House, the terrifying show that is Full House. And there was an episode about a clown with big feet, and our, one of our sons would lay awake at night thinking about clown's feet. So those are some of ours. What about you? What are some irrational fears you guys have or know about people having? Snakes. Okay, that's a good one. Heights. Worms, yeah. Covering all the things that crawl on the ground. Yeah, what? Another one? Dark, suffocating, growing up, growing up yes. Oh, throwing up. I just said growing up, yeah. <laughs> I fear growing up um, and throwing up, yeah. I have, it's funny, I have this irrational fear of hamsters. <laughs> I, I don't like rodents of any kind. We've had a rat problem in our house, and I can I just tell you, I'm not man enough to take care of the job. We had to hire in a company because I just can't even stand the sight of the things. But even hamsters, I grew up with this cute little hamster and no issues when I was a kid. But then when I was a dad and we bought hamsters for our kids, I started looking at their little eyes, those beady black eyes and the teeth, you know, those two dagger-like teeth and having visions of them jumping at me and biting my neck, vampire hamsters. I don't know, but really, I get kind of freaked out. So there are some fears we have that truly don't make sense, but then there are other things we fear that make a lot of sense, that, that are real fears that we are surrounded by, engulfed by, sometimes suffocating. And what are some real fears we feel like face our world today? Spiders. Spiders. <laughs> yeah, spiders. <laughs> Truly a world threat right there. What else? Terrorists. Terrorists. Yeah, terrorist attacks. Murder. Murders. Nuclear weapons. Nuclear weapons. Yeah. Death. Yes. Death. But did you say debt or death? Debt. Okay, debt. Credit, yes, credit card debt and death. Here's, so Chapman University, um, right down the road, they did a study about a year and a half ago about fear in America. And they discovered, yep, America's very scared. And they categorized many of the most common fears. And here, in ascending order, here are some of the ones they discovered. First of all, clowns was on the list. And right above clowns, zombies. And I want you to think a minute, what about you putting those together? Zombie clowns. That would be really, really freaky. Um, Public speaking, robots replacing the workforce. Not thought much about that one. Uh, global warming, reptiles, economic collapse, identity theft, terrorist attack was mentioned. And the top of the list a year and a half ago, which I would be shocked if it's changed much, is corruption of government. Interesting. But the point is, I think we'd all agree that there's no lack of things to be afraid of. And every day there seems to be a new story, new dangers, they're lurking, anxiety's pressing in. And it seems tempting to either obsess about it, you know, and try to fixate and fix it, or to escape it, to hide from it, to stick our head in the sand. And today, as we read this Psalm, Psalm 27, I think in, in simple ways, but hopefully really meaningful ways, we'll see there's a different way. There's a different place to take our fears. And um, we see this modeled in the life of David. And I love that David's honest about his fears, not just in this psalm. We've seen many of the psalms he writes, him being very honest with his fears, with his frustrations, with his confusion, um, at times feeling very alone, abandoned. And we see right off the bat in Psalm 27, even after he asks, whom shall I fear? He begins to identify fears. But the first thing he identifies I love that his leading line is not about what he fears, but about who God is. And that's going to be one of the things we talk about today is how do we orient to God? 
in the midst of our fear, in the face of fear. And he starts by saying, God is my light and my salvation. You know, I bought a light at Home Depot a few weeks ago and it was 12 bucks. That thing could blind this room. It was crazy. Have you seen some of these new lights that come out and they just fill up an entire room, a little flashlight? That's not the kind of light David had at his disposal. For David to have light, it would have been a candle, most likely, uh, most likely a lamp. And so what David's saying right off the bat is, God is my light, not in ways that everything becomes clear, but he makes things clear enough for me to move forward, to me to have confidence. God is my salvation. That clearly means that God is my rescue, my way of escape. And I love that even in those two words, light and salvation, do you know that David, in ways he didn't even understand, was pointing to Jesus already? Jesus, who comes from the line of David. We celebrate that during Christmas time. Just the, the, the lineage leads all the way from David through Mary to Jesus. But we see that, that Jesus is starting to come into view, even in the Psalms, as the one who declared, I am the light of the world in Matthew 8. And the one whose very name, Yeshua, Jesus means salvation, God saves. So David is orienting to God. And he says, in the face of this, that God is not only light, salvation, he's a stronghold. So apparently God's not only someone who pulls us out, he's someone that draws us in. A stronghold would, in this time, connotate like a fortress, a, a safe place to find refuge in the midst of whatever is coming up against you. And then David does begin to identify some of his fears, some of the things that are in view of his reality and when the wicked advance against me to devour me. And he's picturing his enemies like a pack of wolves coming after him. Though an army besieged me, and David literally at times would be one man against many, outnumbered. Even though war break out against me. See, David's actually taking this to the furthest extreme. He's, he's thinking of the worst case scenario. I'll tell you, some of you have the gift of worst case scenario. Do you know that? There's certain people that go, hey, you want to know the worst thing can happen? I'll let you know right now. And David's going to that extreme, going, okay, let's think about the worst thing, a whole war breaking out against me. Yet what? I will be confident. Isn't that compelling? It is to me. Going, gosh, how do you, in view of the worst thing that could happen, and think, for, think in your mind, what's the worst thing you can think of happening right now in your life? How do you have confidence and as a side note, you know, Bill Dogtrim, I think maybe teaching next weekend, he's one of the pastors here, an amazing man. I heard him say once that a terrified world more than ever needs a fearless church. And we live in a terrified world. We need to be a fearless church. David seems to project some sort of confidence, confidence, some sort of fearlessness. And we're just gonna get some insight into how or why in the corner of this term, because it says then, one thing, I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek. So in the face of fear, in the face of what's happening and what could happen, the one thing he's asking, the one thing he's seeking involves three different postures we want to look at this morning. And this idea of, of, of seeking is, is relentless pursuit, the single-minded pursuit. And that's not abnormal in our lives. We are in pursuit of many things. People pursue relationships, people pursue education, people pursue a job, people pursue material possessions and, and riches. But it's often that's like kind of anxious, frenzied pursuit. You know, one of the best pictures of, of 
frenetic, passionate, unceasing pursuit I saw happened almost a year ago with the release of something called Pokemon Go. Remember that? <laughs> What's funny is it's already starting to fade. I was asking my kids the other day, they were into it for a while and they're like, ah, we're over it. Now it's on to Mario or something else. But man, when that thing unleashed, do you remember what happened to our world, to people? Talk about zombies, right? I mean, people just became fixated on their phones, walking around parks and locations. Even churches, I discovered, became Pokemon training centers. And it was a crazy thing to see people obsessed with catching these things that weren't real. But they were passionately in pursuit. I read an article, this was just like a few days after the app um, was released that there was this mob in Central Park, hundreds of people running around Central Park in the middle of the night in New York looking for one Pokemon. And I'm gonna introduce him to you right now. His name is Vaporeon. There he is. Isn't he cute? Yeah. Can you believe there'd be hundreds of people running around in the middle of the night trying to catch him, who doesn't even exist, by the way. And so we, we have this picture of relentless pursuit that's all about striving anxiety. David is painting a different picture today where it's not about ramping up and striving and competing and beating. It's it's about slowing down. And that one thing he's after, which we'll talk about, is is really access through slowing down and dwelling. And that's the first word we want to bring into view, dwell. What does it mean to dwell in the face of fear? And where, where does David want to dwell? He wants to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of his life. That doesn't sound very realistic, does it? especially for a guy that needs to be on the move. He's leading armies, he's leading worship, he's leading a nation. Often he's on the run. How can he dwell all the time in a building all his life? Well, because that's not really what David's talking about. What David's longing for is to dwell in the presence of God. See, the house of the Lord ultimately would become the temple of God. If you know about David, you know that he actually was desperate to build God an official house on earth. And that job didn't go to David. Who did it go to? Anybody know? Solomon, his son. His son got the privilege of building an actual brick and mortar temple. And it was apparently, you know, the most glorious piece of architecture ever to rest on planet earth. But David didn't even get to see the temple built. But what was special about the temple wasn't the building. I mean, it was an amazing building. It was the fact that God would choose to uniquely dwell there. Uniquely manifest, that's kind of a big word for show up and like a hot spot for God. And the God that's omnipresent, he, God is everywhere. God is with us here and now. There's spirit, yet in these times, in the Old Testament, he would uniquely dwell in, in ways and places and that temple is one of them. And so what David's saying is, I long to be in the place where I can feel your presence so tangibly, God. And see, in David's time, that was in the tabernacle which was much like the garden. It was this church that kind of was unpacked and packed up again in beautiful ways, but really practical ways because God's people had to keep moving. And David knew the tabernacle. And so for him, that was really his temple. That was the house of the Lord. So he's saying, I wanna be in that place where God's presence is so real, so tangible, so powerful. But before David's time, it wasn't even a tabernacle, it was just a tent. A guy named Moses, who was leading God's people at the time and had to lead them in ways that he felt so ill-equipped for. You know, he was the guy that said, not me, Lord. And God said, yep, you, but I'll lead you. And God leads Moses and God's people across the Red Sea into the desert. 
and they're trying to find their way and they're trying to really have their entire identity reshaped as God's people. And what's critical is Moses keeps going to this tent called the tent of meeting. And he keeps going to this tent and experiencing God's presence so powerfully. That was the house of the Lord for that time. And so the question is not necessarily where is the bright building? Because Solomon himself who builds the building in the dedication service says, Lord, who are we to think you could ever dwell in a building? The whole earth is your footstool. You rest your feet on the earth. How could you fit in a building? But it's really not about a building. It's about the presence of God and being people that are longing to dwell in the presence of God. And to dwell assumes you're gonna slow down and stay. That's not something I'm good at. I don't know about you. I'm not good at slowing down. I'm a lot better at the seeking that involves rushing and fixing and strategizing. And dwelling is something different. Dwelling involves staying. In fact, even the idea of, of dwelling, uh, living in a dwelling means this is the place you stay. I travel a lot. I have this um, part-time role with an amazing ministry called Alpha that the garden's involved in and churches around the world. 30 million people have gone through an Alpha course, which is crazy. And I get to travel around and meet with pastors and explain what the tool does in churches and help them step into the Alpha story. It means I'm in a lot of hotel rooms. And so often, I don't even bother to unpack it's just kind of like, oh, I'll leave it in the suitcase, pull something out of it. You know, they have drawers in the room. I don't even care. I'm going to be there on such a quick stay. And I was actually sitting on the beach dwelling yesterday, <laughs> yesterday, just sitting and observing. And I, I thought of just unpacking going, gosh, dwelling requires unpacking. Not clothes, but our life before God. Dwelling means, okay, I'm going to stay here long enough, Lord, to begin to pull out whatever I need to lay before you. So this idea of dwelling doesn't come easy, especially in our very distracted, very frenetic, fast-paced world. And I think, you know, for some of us, it's certain times and places we've been able to dwell more than others that help us even know when we've gotten there. I had an incredible experience, very unique experience. I might've shared about this when I preached here last time, a year or so ago. Um, I was in a three-week solitude experience. And what that means is I was in this really cool cabin on the water in the Northwest, but I was utterly alone for three weeks and there was no phone, no computer, no books, no Netflix. Somehow I survived. Um, it was just me, Bible, journal, Jesus. And once a day I would interact with a pastor for an hour who would help me make sense as I unpacked my life before God. But I sat for so long, sat and sat and sat. And it taught me how to slow down and dwell to where now, even going to the beach this morning, I live in Costa Mesa, I was driving up, I stop in sunset, even for 30 minutes, I know what it feels like to slow down and just dwell before God. And I encourage you into this new year, one of the postures in the face of fear, in the face of the things crashing in, that God is calling us to is find those times and places to dwell because dwell actually leads to something else to gazing. And we see in the passage that David says that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze on the beauty of the Lord, to gaze. This idea of gazing is to behold, to, to ponder, to wonder, to discover God's greatness in detail, not just vague generalities. You know, there's so many words we use about God that have become pretty useless, like awesome which is like an 80s word that we keep hanging on to. I'm an 80s guy, so I'm okay with it. 
But awesome falls short when it also applies to restaurants and football teams and hamburgers and surf sessions. And when all those things can also be used to describe God, it, it's, it's something lacking. And I was looking in the thesaurus at the word awesome, and I, I loved some of the synonyms for awesome. It, it was alarming, astonishing, breathtaking, fearsome, imposing, magnificent, mag- magnificent, shocking, wondrous, mind-blowing, majestic, overwhelming, exalted. I've never heard a hamburger described those ways, right? That's awesome. And that's something that takes time to even behold, to gaze at, to understand its awesomeness. Years ago, when I was a college student, years and years and years ago, I did kind of the classic European adventure with my best friend from high school. We went fast through Europe, 14 countries in about six weeks. We were flying. We did it one day in Paris. I wouldn't recommend that. So we were trying to check things off the list. We went into the Louvre, which is like uh, one of the most famous museums in the world. And we saw one of the most famous, well, probably the most famous art piece in the world, which is the Mona Lisa, right? So we know the Mona Lisa's there. We want to see the Mona Lisa. We're going in. There's a line of about at least 20 people waiting to get close up. So I'm like, well, man, we got places to go. We got to check out the Eiffel Tower. We got to get on a train tonight. So instead of waiting in line, I just take out my little disposable camera. Remember those things? pre-iPhone era, and I just kind of hold it up and snap a picture and go, check, move on. Now, years later, I look back, first of all, a picture that's this big, you know, you can barely see anything, let alone what painting that really is. But I look back and go, gosh, how foolish was I? I was in, within 20 feet of one of the greatest pieces of artwork ever in the history of man, and I didn't have time to gaze. I didn't want to wait in line enough to get close enough to see the brushstrokes, to see the details, to behold and ponder that crazy, quirky smile that everybody freaks out about still. And I think if I would have, I would have taken away something radically different from that experience. And dwelling is really intended to lead to gazing, where we begin to delight and awe at the details of God. You know, Psalm 37 says something really cool and kind of scary too. It says that God delights in the details of our lives. I remember for some reason, the first time I heard that, I was a little freaked out because it's like, I don't want God to know the details of my life. I mean, I feel pretty vulnerable knowing that God knows that, and he does, right? Psalm 139 says he knows things. He knows what we're gonna say before we say it, think before we think it. He knows us through and through. But there was something powerful about realizing yet he delights in the details of our lives. And it wasn't really until I became a dad that I began to understand how that could be such a good thing, a powerful thing, because I have four kids now. And I'll tell you, as a guy that is way too distracted too often, one thing that can slow me down is looking at my kids. Like this happened just the other day, a couple days ago. I have um, three boys and a little girl, but my second son... um, is, uh, has this incredible hair right now. You know, it's, it's, it's all about the hair. And he's, he's uh, this auburn kind of redhead. And um, that was from my, his older brother, a source of great mockery growing up. Um, and then he had like many, many 
pictures, we have evidence of the Dumb and Dumber haircut we got. It supercuts for him. So hair was not his strong suit, honestly, through a lot of his life. And he's kind of arrived into the season of hair glory, where he just has the cool hair now. And it's all working for him. And people love his hair. And I was looking at him, just thinking about all this, think, looking at his hair, looking at his eyes, looking at his smile, thinking of him with that awkward haircut. And, now, and I just was delighting in it. And that's something only a dad could do. It'd be kind of weird if one of you went and just started staring at my son, right? (laughs) But it's so cool to think that God does that to us. That God, even now, has the capacity somehow and being omnipresent to stare at us and go, I have seen your journey. I know all the bad haircuts. (laughs) And I delight in every step of your way. But what strikes me is that his invitation in this psalm is for us to do the same to him, to delight in his details. But it takes slowing down. And when I was in that cabin in the Northwest, I had this really cool moment, well, not a moment, really cool, at least an hour, because I had all the time in the world, to delight in spider webs. I don't like spiders, whoever said that. But I came away with this awful moment of looking at a spider web. And seeing the symmetry and the artistry and things that I'm usually just trying to avoid, you know, I was drawn into and it just pointed me to God. I had time to gaze at God's faithfulness. You ever done that? Just gone back, especially if you journal, which I do off and on, and just start rereading, retracing your steps. And as you delight in the details of, oh my gosh, God absolutely made a way in ways I never saw then. I look back on now and realize the details of his faithfulness. Delight in the details of God's word. So often in my life, I've just been trying to kind of do my devotions as a checklist. And there's been times when God has taught me just to take a verse and gaze at that verse and watch meaning, layer by layer of meaning, begin to reveal itself to me because I'm gazing. I've dwelled in a place I can gaze. And ultimately, the last step we see David take, this last posture he assumes after dwelling and gazing is he wants to seek him in his temple. He wants to seek God in his temple. Now, we've already talked about seeking. You know, we talked about passionately, relentlessly seeking God, and that's kind of the one thing approach that David took at the beginning, saying, gosh, if there's one thing in the face of fear that I want to do, it's to dwell, it's to gaze. But this seeking is different because I believe that once you've done some dwelling, once you've been able to to gaze and delight at the details of God, suddenly your seeking is coming from a really different posture. We're seeking God for entirely different reasons. I don't know about you, but often my seeking has to do with what I need God to do for me. It's like, okay, God, here's my to-do list. Or here's my, my urgent need of the moment. But when you take the pathway of dwelling and gazing, suddenly the seeking is a lot more about, God, what do you want for me? What do you want from me? It's an incredible thing to realize that God wants to give us things we'd never know to ask for. God wants to speak to us in ways that we're desperate to hear, but so often we're talking so much. Our seeking is full of our ideas, our words, and there's something about dwelling, gazing, that leads to a seeking that really allows us to orient not only to what God has to give, but simply that, that he is the God who is with us. Because that was the one thing David wanted, was just to be in the presence of God. And there's never a time in your life when you're not in God's presence. Whether that's good news or bad news, that's true. <laughs> but 
man, there are times when you can be attentive to God's presence that are game-changing. But that rarely happens in a rush. Honestly, it rarely happens on Sunday mornings. Sometimes it does. But rarely. It's more about these times inspiring us to dwell and gaze and see God way beyond these times. You know, one thing I love about Darren, and I love many things about Darren and Alex. I'm so proud of all, all the team. I mean, uh, we get to office with the garden team. Our alpha team shares an office. And I just want you to know you have such an amazing team of men and women that lead this church. But Darren particularly, he has from a young age, I think I met Darren when he was 20, he has been somebody whose heart is sought after God. And you see it now, don't you? But I've, I've seen it the whole way through. And it's something really compelling. I don't know if you've noticed, I've told him this, there's something about Darren. There, it's not what he says and he has great things to say, it's just what he kind of radiates. This joy, this passion, this longing for God. I think that's the heart of David. That's the heart of somebody who dwells and gazes and seeks. But here's a danger in that. Is that you, the people that fill these seats, would be tempted to live vicariously off Darren's seeking. I've seen that happen in a lot of church communities. Like, well, as long as our pastor's seeking God, that's enough for me. And that's not enough for God. God wants you to want him for you. And as Darren's up here excited, or whoever's on stage, John or Alex or Brooke or whoever, me, the greatest gift we can give is to stir up a longing and expectancy in you to taste and see for yourself, to dwell, to gaze, to seek him. And as we start this new year, the cool thing, we started talking about fears, is as we create space to say, Lord, the one thing I want, in the midst of many things, you know, it's New Year's, we want many things. My wife and I were away together for a night, which was awesome, just a few weeks ago, and we started making a list, and it got pretty long of new things we wanna do in this new year, new rhythms, new resolutions. I'm sure you have yours. It's not that this is the only thing, but if there's one thing that's important, what we hear David saying It's to make this a year of saying, Lord, I want to find ways and times to dwell and gaze and seek your face. Because when that happens, the fears don't go away. Did you know this, that David didn't say, if these things happen, it's when. And Jesus says that too. In this world, you will have trouble. And here's some bad news. If you're a Jesus follower, sometimes it gets worse, right? When you start following Jesus, you're more opposed There are more trials sometimes, often. So it's not an escape hatch from fear and trouble and anxiety, but it's a place of recalibration, orientation to God in the midst of it, that God is with you, that God is for you. And as we begin this new year, we're gonna pray in a minute, but I would imagine all of us have something we're we're deeply afraid of. This isn't just a minor issue. It's like, oh, if there's one thing that I'm anxious about, one thing that's stealing peace and joy, One thing that keeps me up at night. And my sense, you know, I had this picture a while ago. Uh, Again, this is a father's picture because I've been on both sides of it. I've been the kid, I've been the father. But it's a picture of when a little kid climbs a tree and gets up a bit too high and doesn't know how to get back down. I was that kid. I'm sure most of you have been in a place too high, a rooftop, whatever it is, where you're like, oh crud, how do I get down? And it's terrifying. What's funny is a little kid, especially they may be like three feet you know, from you, but it feels like they're on Mount Everest, right? Looking down, but to be that father looking up, it's no big deal. 
And I have been the father that says, don't look down, just look at me and jump. I'll catch you. But don't look at the stuff around you, look at me. And I think that's what God's saying to us today. Beginning in 2017, look at me. Quit looking at the fears. Quit looking at what could go wrong or what is going wrong. Look at me. Thank you for listening to the Garden Church Podcast. For more information about the Garden Church, visit thegardenlb.org.